And ladies and gentlemen, we have Jam Master Flash here being interviewed. That's right. An exclusive interview. So let's listen. Good to it see is, you again. <laughs> it is June and you're here, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Thank you so much. We met in Paris this winter at the Swedish Institute. Yes. And did this interview we just saw with the turntables and everything. Yes, I do. And remember. I remember I asked you, what do you listen to when you're not DJing? And your answer surprised me because your answer was this music. Mm-hmm. Which music? said Igor Stravinsky, Rites of Spring, performed in Paris for the first time in 1913. Why do you listen to this? When I'm performing on the turntables, I'm taking you on a musical journey, an emotional musical journey. And when I listen to Stravinsky, it's parallel, it's the same thing. You know, uh, each particular song that I introduce from one to the other to the other would bring a certain emotion. So when I listen to Stravinsky, he's, he's that. But he does it in one song. I do it in many songs. You know, I take a piece of a, a pop or a rock or a jazz or a blues or funk, or disco, R&B, you know, a white song, a black song, American song, a foreign song, and I try to cut and paste one behind the other because I'm a strong believer in when you have an audience in front of you, everybody has their own separate view of what they appreciate. And when I was a kid, you know, in my house, my four sisters and my mom and dad, we listened to Latin funk, the Motown sound, disco, pop, rock, like this is the way I came up. So charts and segregating music and this is black and this is white, like I, I'm like, no, music has no color. It's just great music. Because it's, it's interesting, music. it says something of your sort of musical brain. You don't only listen to music, you sort of break it down into parts, even with Stravinsky here. Yes. And, and as you mentioned, your 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 home in the South Bronx. Can you tell us about your father and his record collection? Because oh that has a crucial part of you being here. Oh boy, here we go. Okay. In the Sadler household, there were some rules that were set. Never touch the brown box where the sound comes out of in the living room. That was stereo. Never go in the closet but we was never really told why. It was something really special in that closet. So me being intrigued at this time, I'd wait for dad to come home. He'd come home, he'd get his spirits, go to the closet, okay. he decompressed. And he would go into this closet and he would take out these square, square things and 
I'm looking at them. Some of them had pictures of people's faces, flowers, cars. I'm like, and those were vinyl records. But those you didn't those know are album that. covers, but yeah. I didn't know what it was. You know, then, but but when he pulled, he pulled this black disc out of this cover. I'm like, what is he gonna do with that? And he walks over to the brown box, and he puts it on this spinning thing inside the brown box but when he turns on I noticed that it was a little red light at the bottom of this brown box and it had a picture of a dog and it said RCA I'm like what is this doggy doing at the bottom of the stereo later on I found out that was the name of the stereo company electronics company and you were how old were you at this time? Um, single digits eight nine yeah, you know, yeah just yeah. trying to figure this out so he would I would watch him do the process of taking the black circular thing, put it on this spinning thing, and then take this arm thing, and sound would come out of this box. I'm like, that's magic. How did he do that? And I would watch him for a period of time. Every day he came home, he got his spirits, and he would go into the closet, and I watched the whole process. So then, I must tell you, I started thinking doing the impossible, the unspeakable, breaking the laws of the house. The black disc, the brown box, and me. And um, I remember when I successfully figured it out because I watched the process. Soon as the sound was playing in the middle of the day and dad was at work, they said, if Joe walked in the house now, he's gonna, I'll just say he's gonna let you have it, but I, y'all know what I mean. Um, and uh, what I tried to do is I said, dad would never know. So I would take the black circle, put it back into the, to, to the square thing, and I would just shove it wherever. But then, little did I know, out. he had a chronological system, so yeah. he knew where everything was. So nine times out of 10, I put it in the wrong place. So he'd open the closet and he would call the whole family out. From oldest sister to the youngest, like, who was in my records? And by the time he got to me, I was like this, turn around, pop, 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 pop. I wait for the next day, the door to slam, boom, I go in the kitchen, get the chair, turn the knob, go back in the closet, and go back to the stereo, and mom is like, Joe's. Joe's going to let you have it. So I must have had it, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 times. I really knew what a hard spanking felt like. And here's the key thing. My father was the brother of the 1957 flyweight champion of the world, Sandy Sadler. So his hands was like brick. So getting that whap, oh boy, I'd have a good cry and... So and it work, can't it. have been popular because I remember you mentioned to me that you took a sewing needle that yeah. you had from others because you were so interested in the sort of black grooves that you took the needle and tried it in the black grooves. That can't have been popular either. Um, Mom was a seamstress. She made most of our clothes. And um, I was still intrigued. Where is the music coming from? Like, it's he's taking this black 
circular thing and he's putting it in a brown box and he's doing something and there's sound coming out of it. So I decided to do my, my own investigation. So I, when my mother wasn't looking, I took a sewing needle. I knew how to turn on the brown box. I put the record on top of the spinning thing inside the brown box and I took the needle and I put it in between my fingers and I put it in the record. And I felt vibration. I was like, oh, the music lives inside the record. <laughs> so from that point on, pop, 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 because now it was just really going, like I have to discover more and more and more and more and more. And uh, yeah, it was pretty much part of the journey, you know. Uh, this is uh, the second track we're going to listen to. I don't know if this was one of your father's favorite, but I'm just guessing. This is the second track. Okay. sort of house band at Sigma Studios in Philadelphia. Yes. And I know you usually play this, or you played it a lot as a DJ. Um, there was this dance, this, this dance that's done by couples, and it's called the hustle. It's like where the girl and the guy would kind of intertwine and do this wonderful dance, and it was this guy by the name of Willie D, who was a fan of mine, so I used to come... To, you know, to the parties everywhere that I was. And he did have his partner named Little Debbie. Now, Little Debbie must must have been the weight of this cup, tiny. <laughs> and when this, when, when this and a few other songs would come on, they would do this dance and he would pick her up and spin her. And like, it was just amazing to see him do this. And then other than that, I'm like, I'm real big on strings and horns. Like another one of my favorite people is Nelson Riddle, who does Frank Sinatra's music. You know, I'm real, real big on those, mm -hmm. th those two instruments. So that there played a major role, you know, um, when it came to a couple's, yeah, yeah. couples dancing, you know. What was it like? You were born in Barbados, but you grew up in the South Bronx. Yeah. Can you describe what was it like growing up there? Because when we in Sweden heard about the South Bronx oh in the 70s, you died if, if you <laughs> went there. That was the message we, oh we got. Oh my goodness. I mean, I can't remember all these fires that were told in the magazines. I did get the word that we had a bad mayor. Our police system was corrupt. But that was a lot of places, you know, but for me, it was home. And I heard music a certain way and I was able to find the tools that I needed because there was just something going on inside my head. The way 
music was being played by other DJs, by radio stations. I'm like, that's not the way. So I never had to jump out of fires of any buildings. I never got arrested. Uh, were there criminals? Probably was, and probably are today, and I think that's almost everywhere. <laughs> so I don't know where that comes from, but the Bronx is a beautiful place, and it was definitely my, my uh, clean slate to do what I did. You know, um, when, when growing up then hearing this music, you got sort of an idea to create your own music by bits from other records. Yes. Which was a mad idea at, at that time. But in doing that, you sort of changed the course of popular music, turning turntables into an instrument. It might be a difficult question. Where did you get that from? It must have been people must have thought you were mad trying to do this. I would listen to disco. There was this, these, these, like on a Saturday night on a the radio, there would be these disco DJs playing music, but they would play it and it was continuous. And then I heard other DJs that I would consider like selectors, where they, did, they didn't care about beats per minute. So for me, when I says, I want to be able to entertain an audience in front of me on time, to the beat, nonstop, how do I do that? So the music that I picked in the particular area of the composition that I picked, the drum beat was always too short. So I had to figure out how could I get from like a Led Zeppelin to a Thin Lizzy to a Sly and the Family Stone to a James Brown to a Michael Jackson on time to the beat, one drummer, one after another. How can I do that? And I remember picking up the tone arm and trying to go from one to the other, but it was very sloppy, very off time. And I'm like, this is never going to work, you know. You know, so this thing is going on inside my head. You have to match these things up beats per minute. So I counted the bars, and once I put down the quick mix theory points, I counted how many times the beat passes the tone on before we go back to the full instrumentation of the record. Four bars of music forward to re-arrive to the back to the top of the break is six counterclockwise revolutions and I would re-arrive at the top of the break. The break, the whack parts getting ready to come, continue, one, two, three, four, five, six, the whack parts getting ready to continue, boom. So it was just drums after drums after drums after drums. I had to figure out, how do I do that? I watched DJs, how they treated records and they treated them like children. I'm like, why are they doing that? They would hold the record on its sides and they had this big old velvet brush and they would Like throw. your father did. They were sort of precious objects, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> and they would slide it very carefully into the paper and into the jacket. I'm like, um, so I'm trying to figure out if I can still stay within those laws of it being the precious commodity, the vinyl. How can I stay within them laws? And I just tried so many ways to do that. And it was the mix was coming out too sloppy. This transition was wrong. And it wasn't until I let the record play and I stopped it. Let it play, stopped it. 
But then the problem was, when you first buy the turntable, you have that rubber, that ugly rubber piece of whatever it is, and I guess that protects the platter. And when I would stop the record and then let it go, it would kind of, as opposed to just taking off right away. So my problem was, my mother was a seamstress, and I um, knew what material was. I understood what silk was, polyester, rayon, uh, cotton. So I had to find something that I could place on the platter and then put the record on top of that so that the, the uh, uh, turntable can move smoothly in a forward motion. So I went to the material store with the knowledge of my mother and I felt all the materials. And the one that was the most appealing was felt. And I remember in grade school, we used to cut out letters and, and glue it. And if the word was proper, we'd get a star. Yay! You know, so it was the perfect yeah. material. But the problem was it was too limp. Yeah. So I had to cut out a circle of this felt material. And when I put it on my hands, it was limp. So I had to, when my mother wasn't looking, I turned the iron all the way up high and I sprayed it with spray starch and I would take that limp fabric, now it's like a, a cardboard, it's, and I called it a wafer. Yeah. And, yeah. But you really invented the slip mat. Now, now, nowadays, if you buy vinyl plate, there is this slip mat on it, but that didn't exist. They're building that after your in, in invention, basically. So you not only invented... <laughs> You invented the slip mat as well, yeah. And then, other than that, I needed it to be very fluid. So my mother, like when we were good in school, my mother would bake cookies for us. So it was the wax paper that you know that you put the cookie dough on, you put it in the oven, and you cook it. So I would put the wax paper on the platter and then put the hardened felt on top of that. Now, when I moved the record in a backward-forward motion, the platter was still moving freely. Now, that problem was solved. Yeah. And you, 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 you had... You, you had these turntables and you bought uh, several copies of records yeah. just to be able to, to sort of mix them in a sequence. Yeah. Yes. And... Uh, this was one of those records uh, which shows how eclectic your taste was. This, this is a jazz keyboard player who normally did signatures for TV series. So, third track, please. Okay. interesting because when that point comes it becomes un unlistenable almost. But, but the whack but, part. But yeah. the, the intro is fantastic and have you heard that on so many tracks by El Coulier around the MC or you Yeah, right. What makes this good music to use as a DJ? Now, as I was explaining earlier, the drum beat. 
or, or sometimes, you know, the drum beat with minor musical accompaniment. So that's the drums with an instrument called a go-go or, or the cowbell. Yeah. And the combination of that accompanying the drums is hip-hop. So the key thing for me was is to make sure that I get the six revolutions in before and then throw it to repeat the part I want before it gets to the whack part. And that was the key thing. You know, so we had, uh, I had this gentleman we all used to have called the record boy. He was like a librarian. So we would, he would be the one, i say, I want Bob James, and I want John Davis of the Monster Orchestra, and he would stack all these all on top of each other. And while I'm passing this, he's passing me that, and I'm racing from one record to another to make sure that I never get to the whack part because the people are enjoying themselves. So that was, that was the key part. So for Bob James, like, I remember when I got that, I had to do something really special to that record. So... Whenever we were not playing and our competition is playing somewhere, we used to go visit every now and then. So out of mere respect for the Giants, I couldn't say stay away from the thing and don't look at, and don't look at my records. So what I did was I, take, I took two copies of Bob James and I soaked them in the bathtub overnight. And what happens is it lifts the label off now, when we go record shopping, you don't always win. Sometimes you buy something that's disgusting. It's nothing on it. So I would take those duplicate copies of those disgusting records, soak those in a bathtub, and I would switch the labels. So now, if the other competitive DJ coming to visit me at a club is watching what I'm playing... And I can remember, and it's a joke now, but they went and bought that record. It says, Flash, we sat there, skipped through it. Sat there, let, a whole, let it play, turned it over, sat there, and we never found a part. And that's what I just kind of just said, um, you're never going to find that part on that record. It's not there. So it was, it was my respectable way of just saying, Mind your business. This is this is this track is this is a flash track. Yeah, so yeah. these are some of the things that we did back then. And at that time, no one had sort of heard these kind of beats, quite avant-garde beats, when you just played this loop for minutes. Well, what was the first reaction when you took your home-built equipment and took it to a park in the South Bronx and played? Did the audience love it when they heard it? After figuring out how the cartridge works, how the needle works, how the turntable works, how the mixer works, how the, the peekaboo system, which is later called the queuing, how it all works. I decided to go to the park and, and play. And I said to myself, if I play the drum breakdowns of all these incredible greatest drummers of all time from pop, rock, jazz, blues, funk, disco, R&B, just a drum beat, I'm going to have the crowd losing their mind the whole thing and they were as quiet as you guys are right now. And I remember I went home and I cried for like a week. I'm like, what went wrong? 
my number one fan that watched me through the three years of creating the system was my miniature Doberman Pinscher named Caesar. Because <laughs> the problem was, my friends wanted me to go out and play. You know, it's, my, it's teenager, the girls are in the park, you were gonna have fun, we we're gonna sneak and have some spirits. And the whole thing, I'm saying, ah, I'll be right there. After a while, they stopped, my best friend stopped knocking on the door. They stopped asking my mom, is he coming out to play? I was in my bedroom trying to figure this out. So the only audience I had was my miniature Doberman Pinscher named Caesar. That was it. So, 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 so for me, it was, it was wonderful to just be able to figure all those things out. Yeah. This is another track that you and other DJs picked up at that time. This is very, the original is by um, the Shadows uh, 60s instrumental group. Yeah. It was a Danish jazz player called Jürgen Ingman who did this, and it's called Apache, mm. before Incredible Bongo Band did this cover. Oh. Take me to the Mardi, Mardi Gras are probably two of the most important records in 70s hip hop history. I guess this was a, a, a pop band and, mm. and, and Bob James was jazz. You know, it was like for us, music had no color. When we went shopping for records, we looked in the pop bins and the rock bins, the jazz bins, the blues bins, the R&B bins, the uh, uh, all the bins, all the different genres, the black bins, the white music, it just didn't matter. We were just looking for that break. Because where I come from and where I came up, I heard so much music as I was a toddler. So when it came to charts, I didn't care anything about it. I just personally think that great music was great music. And that uh, version of Apache uh, and... How many copies of that have you worn out during the years? Ooh, um, I think for that album there, which was a cool Herc discovery, right? That record, that album cover had like, like aluminum foil. Like they spent a lot of money on this cover. Um, let's see, I probably bought one copy in Manhattan, the other copy in Staten Island. I was trying to get as many of those as possible. And then somebody illegally pressed the record and made it a 12 inch. Mm. So now it sounded bigger, you know. So uh, I got quite a few. I got quite a few of those, of that album yeah. there. Yeah. That's, I think one of the reasons you're so worthy Polar Music Laureate because you took parts of all kinds of music and with your open mind and your sort of mathematical thinking created some totally new things with it. And th this is another example, a track, when you see the record cover of this guy called Billy Squire, like a white rock guitarist, mm, you mm. wouldn't think this has anything to do with hip hop. And the track is from 1980, but when you hear it now, I think a lot of people will hear how much, how many artists that have used this sample. This is Billy Squire. 
system sound like crap but uh dj breakout cool herc they had the huge systems so you would hear like i'm like wow i wish i had a sound system like mm-hmm. theirs but i i put my system together yeah, yeah. by hand so there, there were many pioneers like you mentioned cool herc now africa bambata right. but you were the sort of first um virtuoso of, of, of the turntables right. and um, at that point in Sweden we had no chance of hearing those kind of DJ sets you did but you did record it in 1981 mm-hmm. the adventures of Grandmaster Flash or the Wheels of Steel uh-huh. which is sort of I guess it's a couple of years after you had done this right. but this is a quite accurate example of yes. the things you, you, you did yes it is uh, this is from 1981 we can listen to that for the truth, for the time, come on, girl, let's rock that. say when that record came out in America some people were like how's he doing that like how is he doing that and when I came over overseas you guys were on it right away and um, people are walking up to me saying do you realize what you've done I'm like I was DJing and it's like we look at you like Tuscanini you know, Bach, I'm like, what? No, I was DJing. 
you know, so it was, it's just my way of speaking with my hands so that people understand how this hip-hop thing started. It had to start with music. Speaking we weren't musicians. With, no, speaking with your hands is a very good expression. Yeah, yeah. I, we couldn't play, we didn't have keyboards, we couldn't, we couldn't afford these mm. things. The vinyl was our, yeah, yeah. and the turntables. You know, was in, in New York at that time, you did this uptown, and uh, at the same time downtown, there was yes. sort of an arty pop scene yeah. with um, Blondie and Rapture. Yeah. We can just hear a short bit of that, which is also included in, in that mix. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was a long, long interview. I hope you enjoyed it. Grandmaster Flash, I'll put the description in the box. Good night.
this one part rock. Even though my sister smoked crack cocaine, she was nine months pregnant, ain't nothing changed. People say every day, you're not, you're taller than me, you're not too short. But that's my name. I, I grew up in Los Angeles, I'm from L.A. And I moved to Oakland in 1980 when I started rapping. And what happened was, uh, you know, I went through a lot of stuff, you know, selling tapes. I sold tapes on the streets, like just like an everyday vendor. I sold tapes. I had customers. I had clientele to take orders. I, I, in 85, in 1985, I was uh, affiliated with a small independent label, which put out three LPs. And, you know, over a three-year period, I didn't get paid, but I learned a lot. And what took place in 87 was me and my manager, we started our own company. And we started distributing our own records, which means we started collecting the money, which means, you know, we kicked up a little dust. And being as that we sold, you know, the rumor goes it was something like 50,000 tapes or something. We finally started getting offers from, we finally got a few offers from record companies. And here I am now. That's what I tend to do. 